Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. This episode explores storms near and far and how science is helping to give us the tools to understand what's taking place and stay safe. Miss Lily has exciting news about the northern lights and more about the sun. I'm going to chat with Dave Brown about solar storms and their potential impact on Earth. I've got some tips and suggestions on getting the most out of your weather app and a little update on my own close call with the big storm that just screamed across Ontario and Quebec. Come on, Lewis, let's get out of the rain. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Hey, Lily. Hi. Is it true the northern lights really make sound? Oh, yeah. Cool. Uh, scientists at Finland's Aalto University have been studying the sounds of the aurora for years. Their acoustic engineers have made recordings of auroral noises. Can you can you guess what they sound like? I bet do they sound like maybe a hum from a radio, like like dialing a shortwave radio, or mm-hmm. or just static? You know. Huh? No. No? You're not going to air that yet, eh? You're holding back oh, on yeah. <laughs> I hold all the cards, buddy. Okay. Okay, well, it turns out that the sound the Northern Lights makes, or what Finnish researchers called auroras, is the sound of, like, pops and cracks. Oh. Not only do they make very distinct sounds, they can even be heard when they can't actually be seen. That's pretty cool. Invisible auroras, but you can hear them. Mm-hmm. Love yeah. it. Love it. Auroras, or um, northern lights, are most often observed or heard during periods of moderate geomagnetic activity. The theory is that the sound results from electrical discharges across a temperature inversion layer about 230 feet, which is 70 meters, above the ground. Inuit people have said you can hear the aurora borealis, or northern lights. They've been saying that forever. But I don't know if scientists ever believe them. Actually, there's a lot of legends about Inuit who believe that the uh, the northern lights and the sounds they make are walruses playing with the skulls of humans. <laughs> and, and some Inuit believe it's humans playing with the skulls of walruses. So that goes way back in, into traditional myths and, and, and legend telling I mean, you could totally think about like the click clack cracking sound. Totally makes sense of skulls. Now I'm even more excited to hear what these things sound like. Those uh, who live in areas closer to the auroral oval where geomagnetic activity is stronger have a better chance to hear these sounds whether or not they can actually be seen. So turns out the sounds are much more common than scientists or non-Inuit thought. When non-Inuit people heard them, they often thought it was just ice cracking or maybe a dog. Or, you know, some other animal. <laughs> you know, people like to make sense of what they're hearing or seeing based on what they know. And uh, if they've never experienced this, like, you know, non-Arctic people, they wouldn't believe that this is making sound. So I could, I could see why they'd think it's something else. I assume you you, you want to hear what they sound like, right? You ready to play the sound finally? <laughs> it's a little underwhelming. What is it? <laughs> quite honestly. All this buildup. All right, play the sound. What? That's it? It does sound like bowling with skulls. I mean, I've never bowled with skulls, but... <laughs> Lily, thanks for digging that up. Yeah, but, no problem. Uh, can you describe what the Northern Lights look like? Uh, uh, people have seen the Northern Lights, believe that they are truly mystifying. 
Uh, they can burst above you in a rush of purples, greens, blues, and sometimes red. That sounds amazing. Lily, were you also able to check on the uh, solar storm situation on the sun and, and its impact on our geomagnetic situation here on Earth? <laughs> oh my gosh. The biggest sunspot yet of solar cycle 25. It's a big one. The active region on the sun, AR3014, now aimed pretty much directly towards Earth, is the biggest sunspot of the solar cycle so far. These cycles happen about every 11 years, and this one is still on an upswing, so even bigger sunspots likely lie ahead. The active sunspot is about seven times the size of the Earth. They have a system for measuring solar sunspots. AR3014, for instance, is over a thousand mh, or a thousand millionths of the visible solar disk in the sky. Earth, for example, is 169 mh. The largest sunspots in recent history are around 3,000 mh. And one of the most famous sunspots, the Great Sunspot of 1947, was well over 6,000 mh. That's huge compared to the Earth. Hey, what does this all mean for our geomagnetic activity here? Define geomagnetic, Dad. Don't worry, I won't make you do that. <laughs> it's not gravity. But it's a radio sort of shell that surrounds the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. That's right. Geomagnetic activity remains unsettled due to solar wind from a coronal hole. The magnetic forces at play on our star, which cause this sunspot to bubble up to monster size, will eventually lose its steam. Didn't NASA send an exploratory probe towards the sun recently? Yeah, yeah. The uh, Parker Solar Probe was launched in 2018. In February 2022, it came within 8 million kilometers of the sun, the closest yet, and the ninth time it circled the sun. The probe has three main objectives. Number one, to trace the flow of energy that heats the sun's outer atmosphere. Number two, to shed light on the sources of the solar wind, the constant flow of solar material escaping from the sun, and three, to explore how solar energetic particles, which can make up 150 million kilometer journeys to Earth in under an hour, are transported and accelerated. The mission was also conceived in 1958, but it took 60 years to develop the technology to make it happen. Designed and built at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland, Parker's solar probe carries a heat shield, autonomous onboard smarts to keep the spacecraft facing the sun, and an efficient cooling system. So just how close will this Parker probe get to the sun? In uh, 2024, yeah. it's expected to reach a top speed of about uh, 700,000 kilometers per hour as it flies to within 6.2 million kilometers of the sun's surface. The spacecraft and instruments are protected from the sun's heat wave, by an 11.43 centimeter thick carbon composite shield, which needs to withstand temperatures outside the spacecraft that reach nearly 1,377 Celsius. That's in my old guy brain. That's five inches thick. That's a lot of shield. That's cool. So, Lily, what's going to eventually happen to the Parker Solar Probe? Uh, they anticipate that in 2025, the Parker Solar Probe will become part of the sun. Oh, boy. Yeah. Thank you, Probe. Thank you, Lily. Lots of great information for sure. Time for the bucket list.
Up next is a chat I had with my good friend Dave Brown, host of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. We discuss solar storms and their impact on Earth, things like GPS, the Internet, and basic electricity. It's fair to say the sun is our friend. Maybe a little less so for me as an albino. But without sun, there would be no life on Earth. But the sun every now and then flares up or causes a little bit of a solar storm, which can wreak some havoc on the power grid here on Earth. So let's talk about that with environmental contributor Lawrence Gunther. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. Dave, how are you? I'm well. So, Lawrence, we're talking about our good friend, the sun, out there in space. But I need you to start with a bit of science for me. Can you explain what exactly constitutes a solar storm? Well, every so often, there's a flare-up on the uh, surface of the sun. It releases a plasma cloud, and that plasma cloud is made up of protons and neutrons, or generally electrically charged particles. So as that sort of leaves the sun and enters the Earth's atmosphere, it plays a little bit of havoc with the uh, magnetic field around the Earth. Not gravity, right? That's different. But the magnetic field around the Earth, you know, that's what the satellites depend on to circle the Earth without drifting off. When those electrically charged particles hit that magnetic field, things start to go a little wonky. And uh, and then that goes down onto the surface as well and plays with our, our electrical systems right here on the ground. So, Lawrence, when we're talking about these solar storms, how common are they? How frequently do we experience them? Well, they've been taking some ice core samples up in the Arctic, and they figured out how to detect when these storms have happened in the past. There was a giant one back in the, the 700 uh, common era, you know, and uh, they said it, it was probably one of the biggest uh, so far on record. It would have been pretty catastrophic if they were using uh, any sort of electronic equipment back then. There was another one in around 900 uh, common era. and uh, But generally, they say about every 500 years, we can expect a, a, a pretty juicy one for sure. But normally, every 11 years, they sort of a little pulse hits. And that's what we're sort of going through right now. Right. We get, we get flares frequently, but a larger scale solar storm is a little bit more rare. That said, Lawrence, 500 years ago, there was a lot less on this planet that involved the use of electricity, i.e. we weren't using any electricity. So what is the impact when there is a significant solar flare or even a solar storm in regards to the electrical power grid on Earth? Well, there was one in the 1870s, and that was when they were still using telecommunications with cables and, and guys pressing little buttons there and sending signals down the uh, the wires from community to community. Well, they could operate those systems even if they unplugged the batteries. The paper in those telegraph systems was catching on fire. The guys and women that were pressing those little buttons to send the Morse code down the wires were getting electrocuted. So just that alone, right? There was another one more recently, uh, I think in 1989 in and it sort of pulsed onto Quebec. The, the hydroelectric grid in Quebec took a big hit. Some of the transformers burst into flames and, and, and broke down. Five million people around uh, northeastern uh, North America were without power for about nine hours. That 1989, that's not that long ago. No, certainly not that long ago. I was, I was actually alive. So if I was actually alive, which I wasn't in the year 900, that implies that definitely it was, uh, it was a lot closer. Lawrence, is, is there an increased risk to the power grid based on the way in which our technology has evolved inside the last 30 to 50 years, or maybe even the sense that we're using things like more solar panels, more solar energy? Well, you think about, uh, you know, even our own homes, right? We have all these surge protectors now we're using to protect our computers, our TVs, and that's just in our home. 
and that could just become a from a low energy brownouts or or a pulses when energy pulses into our homes. So you know you think our home has a hundred amps. The average house has a hundred amps coming into it. When these bigger solar storms hit, it's like a hundred amps of power hitting the ground. Right, a hundred amps of power just boom. That's that's as much as the power coming in your house. Only this is on top of that. So you're doubling all of a sudden the power in, in your grid, in your home. Things are going to start to fry. Your computers, your TVs, anything plugged in, any sensitive circuit boards, you know, even things like microwaves and all the talking electronics we have, all the appliances, all of that stuff is going to get fried. And then that goes down through the internet. I mean, it's all connected with wiring, right? So so all the switches and servers are going to, you know, if you don't get, take those offline, anything that's in the direct pulse before they can take it offline is going to be affected. And, and that affects our communications. If you think about cellular communications on all the cell phone towers, they're all, you know, like big giant metal antennas sticking out of the ground. So they're going to get a big pulse and uh, they'll go down. And, and even more satellite communications and the satellites themselves, right? So the ability to communicate between ground and the satellites and ship to shore, airplane to ground, all high frequency, that's going to be interfered with. And then the last thing, Dave, is when the atmosphere becomes more charged, it becomes denser. And the satellites that are in low Earth orbit, like all those uh, Starlink satellites that uh, you know SpaceX is putting up there and others, they're in low Earth orbit. So now they're going to be flying through much denser sort of atmosphere. They're going to slow down and they're going to start to fall to Earth. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, falling <laughs> so satellites falling satellites from the sky. Sounds absolutely lovely. Uh, Lawrence, yeah. I, I know that there's no crystal ball on this, but is there any kind of estimate about the likelihood of a significant solar event? Again, I keep coming back to the word significant because, as you say, we can have flares here and there and we can get those pretty regularly. But when we're talking about a significant event like you just described, is there yeah. any sense of, of, of predicting that? It's like, trying to predict when the next earthquake is going to hit the uh, west coast of North America, you know, Vancouver and California and the tsunamis and, you know, Los Angeles will slip into the sea. We know it's going to happen. Uh, we just don't know when. So it will happen. I mean, they do seem to happen every 500 years, the big ones, right? The 100 amp type solar hits to the earth. Uh, as far as the smaller ones, uh, the 11-year cycle ones, we're going through one now, and there was just a pulse detected off the sun at a normal sunspot that they know is high activity, and that is on its way to Earth. So stay tuned for staticky radios for those of you who still listen to the radio. You know, Lawrence, this this may sound really dark, but I but I watch a lot of videos about space and about the universe, and you know, the sun's a couple billion years old, and Stars only really have a life of a couple of uh, billion years or, you know, a little, a little bit more than that. So, you know, one day yeah. our sun may just have a little bit of a supernova incident and that'll be that. So, you know, we can uh, live our lives every day like it's our last. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left, 122 meters. Everyone should know how to get the most out of their weather app. Heading outdoors is always exciting and often made more so when weather's a factor. It can make things exciting, but it can also push your adventure into the realm of danger. Some people use storm tracking apps that show you where the storms are based on radar. They can track the path of the storm, the size of the storm, and its strength. Unfortunately, these apps are largely visual based and they're not going to be much use to people who use voiceover or other screen reading software. 
Personally, I find the weather app that comes with the iPhone pretty useful. You get weather warnings, long-term forecasts, 10 days ahead, up-to-date news on what's happening now in your area, the ability to select different areas that you're interested in, hour-by-hour news about the weather and the temperature, and it's all generally fairly accurate. The only thing it doesn't give you is wind speed. I have two weather apps on my iPhone. The second one has wind speed. The first one is the iPhone standard weather app. Weather. Double tap to open. This one here. Weather. Kalaboji. 21 degrees. Cloudy. High 23 degrees. Low 13 degrees. So that's where I'm going to go fishing this weekend. But let me get back to Ottawa. Location list. Button. Location list. That's bottom right corner. My location. Toronto. My location. Cobden. Kalaboji. Cornwall Island. Quebec City. Sudbury. Ottawa. 2.54 p.m. Ottawa. 2.54 p.m. 7 p.m. Cloudy. 23 degrees. Let's see the... What it is now. 4 p.m. Middle of the screen. Degrees, 3 p.m. Cloudy. 22 degrees. Let's 10, see if there's 11, some weather 12, coming up. 1 a.m. Rain. 80% chance of rain. 20 degrees. See, there, one, 1 o'clock. Rain. 2 a.m. Rain. 90% chance of rain. Again in the bottom Location right corners. 10-day forecast. Saturday. 10-day forecast. Showers. 10-day forecast. Friday. 100% chance of rain. High of 22. Low of 17. Saturday. Showers. 80% chance of rain. High of 22. Low of... Sunday. Partly cloudy. High of 26. Low of 12. So that's all pretty good. So you can get look ahead 10 days. So let's get out of that one. Weather gods. Weather gods. You have to pay for this one, but it's really nice. Listen. Weather gods. Loading. What's new? Storm threats. Potential storm threats affecting the USA, Puerto Rico, and Guam have been added to the extended forecast subscription. Share. Share the web. Refresh. Dark mode. UI improvements. Bug fix. Continue. Continue. Button. Ottawa. Thursday, May 26, 2.55 p.m. Button. Heading. That sounds all pretty ominous, but they have some great background sounds for sure. Last updated a moment ago. Double tap. Share. Button. No weather alerts. Button. No weather alerts. Conti- no storm threats. Button. No storm threats. Settings. Button. No notifications. Button. Cloudy for the next couple of hours. Fire God. Cloudy. Awake. Ice blink twice. Button. Heading. S- Fire God Seven is the sun. For sunrise, sunset. Temperature. And sunny skies. Outdoor. Now 21 degrees. Steady. Day. 24 degrees. Night. 18. High ultraviolet. Index 6. Ice God. Sleeping. Button. Ice God. Seven so day no snow. For snow. Sleep. And snow unlikely. Air God, sleeping. Button. Air Seven God is the wind. Speed and wind gusts, 4.6. So, no, nothing to worry about there. Wind from the south-southwest, 4.6 kilometers per hour. Humidity, 62%. 2.14 degrees. Water God, sleeping. Button. Water God is Seven the rain. Seven-day for rain. Hail and rain unlikely. Moon Goddess, winning crescent. A wave, looking and down at the ice And gives you the moon button. phases, too. Daily information for moon phase, moon rise, and moon set. Weather Gods is certainly a more of a entertaining weather app, but it's a little more sort of embedded you have to dig a little deeper to get the details but when you want the wind and a few more of those details that's the one to have otherwise the iphone app does really well things you want to use your weather app for is knowing when to stay off the water or if temperatures are going to become extreme too much sun and heat for you and your pooch or just too darn cold to be out there you got to take care of yourself and your dog you can all get frostbite if you're not careful And there's avoiding strong winds and lightning. We all got a taste of that again this past weekend. Remember, it's not a given that you're going to make it to shore when a storm's coming. That storm that hit on May 21st was moving at 190 kilometers an hour. It made it from Toronto to Ottawa in two hours. Wind direction is also not a great indicator. Often, the wind shears off from the storm. So if the storm is coming towards you, the wind might be indicating a different direction altogether, giving you the false impression that what you're hearing is in fact wrong. 
you might be thinking that the wind is actually blowing the storm away from you when in fact it's coming straight at you. Storms are often preceded by periods of calm, then shifting wind speeds, then drops in temperature. Cloud cover and the sun disappearing are also other signals that a storm is coming. If it's a rainstorm, you can often smell the ozone that the rain produces as it's passing through the atmosphere. All of this can occur in as little as 30 minutes. For sure, one indicator you want to be aware of when you're out fishing is when your fishing line seems to be floating above the water when you cast out. That means the air is becoming highly charged with electrical current. Things just float like your hair. When you feel that, get down, get under a bridge, get off the water. Summer storm cells are common. Wasn't that long ago, I was hosting a series of offshore fishing trips out of Miami for a large group of people with disabilities. My first morning, I woke up and listened to the weather forecast and heard storm cells projected. I contacted the captain and said, how bad is it going to be? And he goes, well, it can get rough out there. Your people might get a little sick, but otherwise we should be fine. I'm thinking, well, storms, lightning, rough weather, waves, people getting sick. I canceled the event that day. The next day I woke up, exact same thing. I didn't realize that in Miami, storm cells were a daily occurrence and they always popped up just after lunch. People just learned how to avoid them. They're very small storm cells, easily tracked and easily avoided if you can move your boat around and keep an eye on these storms using things like radar. So we went out fishing. Just this past weekend, we had my boat hooked up to my truck, sitting in my driveway with my buddy. We're both checking our weather apps. I'm looking at my iPhone weather app that's now telling me there's a storm warning issued by Environment Canada and that the storm is lightning 90% between the hours of 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We were sitting in my driveway at 12.30. My friend's looking at his radar app and he sees a storm cell way west of Toronto. And he said, Lawrence, this storm cell is not even anywhere even close. It's projected to hit us around 5.36 o'clock tonight. That we should go now. And I said, well, if we go now, we're going to be on the water when my weather app says the storm's going to hit. Let's have lunch and we'll think about it again in a couple hours. So he went home. I went in the house. At quarter to three, he called me from the road. He was heading back to my place. He just got a weather alert on his smartphone, same as me. And the storm was raging. He turned around and went home. I went and sat on my back porch and listened to one of the most ferocious storms I've ever heard go through Ottawa in the past 25 years that I've lived here. I heard the tornadoes go through in 2018 that hit Dunrobin on the west end of Ottawa, and this storm sounded way more ferocious. It was because I was paying attention to what my science-based weather app was telling me that we stayed off the water. My friend's weather app was telling him something else. It was based on traditional knowledge about tracking storms in terms of rate of progress. It did not know the storm was moving far quicker than most storms. Because of our use of this technology, we were safe. Unfortunately, for many others, that wasn't the case, including a woman whose boat flipped over on the Ottawa River where we were going to go fishing. She drowned. The next day, we were thinking about going out and seeing what happened to the river, but I heard from the mayor that we should stay off the roads because they were busy cleaning up the 200 telephone poles that got knocked down and all the power lines and all the trees and branches. Most of the traffic lights on the intersections were closed. 
The boat launch is only a five-minute drive from my house, but I didn't feel right about being out there and adding another potential emergency to what was already a very overwhelmed emergency response service. The next morning, we went out. It was holiday Monday, and I'm listening to the mayor again on the radio before we head out, and he lets us know that the sewage treatment plant for the city of Ottawa stopped functioning on Saturday during the storm when the power went out and only got back up and running Sunday afternoon. For 24 hours, raw sewage was being released into the Ottawa River. I'm glad I wasn't out there for that. No fish kills, though. You know, these raw sewage releases, it's more of a visual mess when you see condoms and tampon applicators floating down the river. Otherwise, it's raw sewage. It's kind of fertilizer for the weed beds. So pay attention to your science, pay attention to your technology, and don't necessarily just go on what your life experience tells you. Things are changing out there. You may end up with less hair-raising stories to tell around the fire, but you're going to be alive. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments on your podcast provider's site so other people will learn about our new show. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.